I've been to his church and spoken his platform. And Jeremy Cox, another friend of mine from uh, Terrell, he just took a church in Oklahoma. And I saw him preach the other day, and it almost was the same exact platform. And I was looking at the pulpits. And, like, whoever built the pulpits were probably home builders. Because there is so much wood on that pulpit that if it fell over, it'd kill you. <laughs> and so, like, I wonder, like, you know, how did they get it up there? Like, it took a crane to probably get the thing up there. I mean, it's huge. It's, like, literally, their pulpits are, like, this wide. It's like a bookshelf. I guess so they can just pull one out when they want to preach or something. I don't know, man, but it's giant. I was thinking, man, I don't know if I, if I would like that. It'd feel like some, I could always have this wall between me and everybody else. Maybe that's why they built it that way. I don't know, but uh, I like my music stand is what I'm saying. I like my music stand. Well, um, this morning, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, we're back on the cookbook stuff, and, and uh, really when I... When I was thinking about all these things that I think about and asking questions, and, and basically that's a lot of where the cookbook is coming from, is from my questions more than my answers. Um, and it's a search for truth, really, in a lot of things, um, whether it's a reevaluation of my life, like the very first one we preached about tell no one, and um, the idea of the, Jesus trying to keep us from being hypocrites and Pharisees, uh, and yet that, that whole sermon... The, the irony of that sermon was when I preached it, I was like, this might be the heaviest thing I preach. And everybody was like, no, that wasn't that bad. And, like I, and all I took back was, then I, it was only for me. Like God would just like, what, you want self-confession, God? I'm just supposed to get up and tell everybody I was wrong over the past? Like, do it, does it have to be always everybody that I have to tell every, you know, thing to? And like, God is funny, you're funny like that. But like, so a lot of these things I wrote down, long time ago, I had like a list of things that I had questions about that would come to me in the middle of the night while I'm thinking and just meditating kind of on the word or on scriptures. And, and so a lot of these are like, these are things I want to explore. Things that I know I shouldn't be afraid of, but maybe am, or things that uh, I don't understand, but would like to. And uh, one of the things, like I said to you this morning, you know, some of this might be just answering, you pulling open the can of worms and asking questions and making you go, oh, I don't know either. And, and it should bother you that you don't. I'm not sure that you'll find the answer, but it should bother you to some degree that if you don't know some of this stuff or if you haven't looked at some of these things this way, because I wanted to challenge you. I've most often found that when somebody challenges the way I think or believe, it's when I learn the most. As much as I don't like to be challenged in the way I think and I believe, because nothing rattles your foundation like somebody coming along and being able to use the scripture to all of a sudden tear apart what you've been living on, Right? And so, like, when somebody asks me a question, I'm like, well, I thought it was this way forever, but whoa, he just posed a question to me that shakes my doctrine a little bit. Now I need to go find out, I need to learn. Well, that's a lot of what the cookbook is, things that have shaken me, things that I've looked packed and, and, and reflected on, and, and it bothered me. One of those things is change. Change is inevitable. From beginning to end, uh, how we arrive at our, uh, uh, our, destination, our destination is a journey. I mean, it's, we're, we're headed one place, but really the part that we enjoy is not necessarily getting there half as much as the whole journey to get there. We <clears throat> rarely step back and look at all the consequences and all the circumstances of our journey. We chalk it up to life, and we really never give it a second thought. We don't keep track of how many mountains we experience. We don't keep track of how many valleys we cross through. We never really just step back to look at our lives because we're too busy living it. 
It's happening in real time. It's not like we get to just reflect from 100 miles away and go, wow, look at my life. And this causes us to ask a lot of questions along the way. We wonder, how did we get here? Anybody ever said that in your life? How did we get here? We wonder, did, when did things go wrong? Like looking at this political landscape right now. When was the significant trigger that we should have looked out for? When did things start to go right? When did this happen and when did that happen? We're oblivious to the move of God in our life until it's absolutely obvious and clear that he's really been there the whole time. How many of you ever thought that? Like right at you get to the end of your circumstances, you finally get to the other side of the, the, the hardest place that you had to go through, and you're like, God was there the whole time. But you didn't feel it at all, did you, when you're through it? You're like, where are you? And at the end, we're like, silly us. Why? Because life consumes our attention. It consumes it. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites had enjoyed a season of blessing in Egypt while Joseph ruled. Their families grew in number, and Egypt was blessed because of their fruitfulness. They brought a lot of engineering. They brought a lot of uh, uh, work and labor. However, only eight verses in Exodus, and the life of the Israelites is about to drastically change. I'm starting this morning from Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 14. Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They just kept pushing them and pushing them. They kept pushing them into labor, pushing them into this, made them slaves. The oppression has begun. Just eight verses in, the lives of the Israelites went from a life of freedom, self-expression, to a life of a harshly governed slavery, slavery where they were treated ruthlessly, it says. And it only gets worse from here. Eventually, this line of thinking that is taking place in Egypt is going to lead them and set in motion the slaughter of children. This is the breaking point. This is the breaking point. This is the place where the prayers of Israel will finally be heard by God, and God will send an answer. Everything is in turmoil. They've watched as Egypt sank into racism. They watched as it sank into idolatry and cruelness. All it took is for Egypt to forget how they survived the worst famine they had ever known. They had forgotten that if not for Joseph, there would be no Egypt. Is that where we are as a country? As a community? How about as a church? Have we forgotten what makes us great? 
Are we one generation removed from a godless society and a wicked culture? America began when the church in England had lost its way. The culture had become too depraved in the eyes of some to the point that they fled their homes in search of a place where they could worship God in freedom. And when we reflect on the causes of what led to these great exoduses in humanity, we always agree with with why change needed to happen, but we rarely reflect upon the failure that happened along the way to get us where we are today. Israel didn't just decide to leave and, and, and everything went well for them, guys. I don't know if you read Exodus. They encountered 40 years of failure before finally entering into the promise. America wasn't born the minute the pilgrims landed. There were years of hardship, bad decisions, and failure that stood in front of them. Jesus all the while reminds us, have you counted the cost of what it might take to return to me? What does it take for us to wake up from our content little lives and realize that we're at a turning point? How many abortions is it going to take? How many more failed marriages will it take? How many more orphans are needed? How many more murders are needed? Famines. When do we hit that place like the children of Israel where we start the exodus back to the promises of God? What will be the catalyst in your life that will propel you back to God? I returned this past week, like I said, from a leadership conference, and all these pastors, they're gathered together. They're all talking about new ways to manage the church, to organize the church, to reach the next generation, to ultimately grow a big following of people. That's what they do. That's what they talk about. If they didn't talk about stuff like that, they would never brag about how many get saved on a weekly basis. I mean, I know all glory be to God. But, I mean, here's where this stuff drives me nuts, guys. I'm going to kind of get off my notes here. This one guy gets up, and he's not, he, does, he tries to make it sound as humbling as he can that 130 people come to the altar every week. The city that he's in is about a half a million people, which says that if he keeps getting 100, he averages 130 a week at the altar is what he said, at the megachurch. So you realize in 35 years, he'll completely have told everybody in, this, in his city that the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's what I know. There are two other megachurches in that city. One of them's Andy Stanley. One of them's a guy named Bishop Del Bronner. Both those guys run massive, massive churches that probably experience pretty close to the same thing. My question is, with all these people getting saved, how come the crime rate hasn't stopped? How come racial inequality is in that city more than any other city? What are they saving them to? What are we putting out as a church? What are we calling discipleship? Is disciple just anybody who says yes to Jesus, therefore you can go about doing everything you want to do and you never learn about love, equality, you never learn about uh, anything else, you never, your life never changes. For all these people, all these pastors who get up and say, oh, we're doing all this great stuff, everybody's getting saved in our country, just going down and down and down. I'm trying to see the correlation between saved people, how saved people equal a worse nation. And then there's like no recognition of this. There's nobody asked that question, guys. This is the stuff that's bothering me. I mean, there's... I don't want to go there. Got to behave. Got to behave. They talk about this stuff because it's all they see. It's all they see. They see the turmoil. But they want to focus on the success of ministry. I just need to worry about how I can manage the church, focus on the church, and how I can manage this, make sure people are getting saved every week, and make sure our numbers are this. If numbers didn't matter, they wouldn't mention them. 
well, Brother Jim, you know, numbers, that's every person, that represents every person Jesus died for. Whatever you need to tell yourself. They're consumed. They're consumed with the busyness of church life. They're consumed with this American idea of what church has become. They struggle to see anything more than what's physically in front of them. They're not looking at the big picture. They're putting blinders onto everything else and just focusing on what's happening inside their room. And if you need proof, one of the statements that was made at the meeting was the mention of an article written by someone who hasn't been to church since they were a child. This person had decided to uh, attend a megachurch to kind of see what the, all the hype was about, to see how much had changed since leaving the church as a child, right? The article stated that after attending a few services, the one thing that had changed in church is that prayer no longer was the forefront or existed hardly in the megachurch at all. And you should have heard the gasp in the room, right? These pastors, oh, and I was like, really? Really? Gasp? Or do they not realize that if you account for all the time we pray in a normal Sunday morning service here, I'm about to like reap coals on my own self here, okay guys? So you can see more where my heart's at. That even I'm not beyond escaping the truth of what I'm about to say, okay? But if you look at our regular Sunday morning service and all the times we pray, it won't even come up to 10% of the hours that we take. How can I show you, like, here's the thing that we have to learn, Right? There's no way that God's people are not a praying people. But let's be honest, on a Sunday morning service, let's just even take ours so I'm not like trying to point fingers at somebody else that I'm not, right? We prayed to start things off. We're going to pray right at the end of worship. I'm going to pray at the end of the sermon. We're going to pray. When we have all these designated times where we pray, we'll count the minutes up. And now let's look at our hour and a half service. How many minutes is that going to compare? I bet it's around 10%, maybe 12. And you wonder why only 10% of the church shows up at the prayer meeting? We wonder why only prayer is such a small thing. We can't hardly find any churches that pray anymore. What have we said we value? Well, we value worship more than we value prayer. Well, brother, if I spend all this time in praying, people are going to leave. I know. That should also tell us about the condition of our heart. That's like, that's like me saying, you love to sing about God, just not talk to him. You let that sink in. Because that's what prayer is offering you. I can offer you the chance of a lifetime, you can close your eyes, speak to the Lord, and if, you, if we can get quiet enough, you will hear him speak to you. The, the Bible promises that you will hear the still small voice, that, that there is, it's not found in the noise, it's found in the quietness. And if we can get quiet, you can hear that. I can prompt communication between you and God. Which would you rather do? Worship where we sing about him or actually talk to him. And whether we like that or not, we say, I'd rather sing about him. Because if I have to sit there, look, a lot of it is because we don't even like ourselves. Right? So the, it gets quiet. This is totally not in my notes. I'm totally, guys, I'm going off script here, but bear with me. But a lot of that is it gets quiet, and we're stuck with ourselves in our head. And we don't even like ourselves. We don't like hanging out with ourselves. So we're all quiet. You're running through that laundry list of things which is making you feel guiltier and guiltier because you're not talking to God while it's quiet. So you avoid it. You avoid it because it makes you feel bad. Because you spend more time thinking about yourself in prayer than you do about God. Listen, I'm talking to me. If it's not true, then maybe it's just me, guys, and I'm just self-confessing. I'm just telling you what, for me, if I don't pray at least 30 minutes, and the reason 30 
at least, because 15 minutes is the first 15 is all me. It's me getting out the nails and hammer and crucifying this guy that keeps thinking that all the things he has to do today is more important than being with God in that moment. That's the self trying to rise up. And, and I'm trying to submit this self that's trying to rise up and say it's more important. And I'm trying to push it to Jesus and it's clawing everywhere trying to get out of it. Oh, dude, you're going to Christ. Because I know as soon as I subject him to Christ, Christ will put him on the cross and crucify that thing so we can get that thing out of the way. And now it's just the, the, the gym that God created in Jesus. And I can hear from him and he can speak to me and then things can start to get right. Why? Because I'm listening to the source. I'm listening to the one who created me, right? But even in the process of prayer, there's failure, right? I'm failing to come close to God. I'm failing to be near to him. But if I don't keep persevering and pushing on, I'm never going to be able to talk with him. We don't pray very much. We wonder why the meeting, there's a very small prayer meeting. And the horrible thing about it, we're constantly reminded, what is God's house called? The house of prayer. Yeah, we, like we need more guilt. Right? The prophet Jeremiah was sickened at what had become the church in his day. He actually wrote a book, a whole book called Lamentations. And it's basically him weeping throughout the entire thing. He begged the people of his day to take notice. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see him. By the time he's already in chapter 3, he says, Return, faithless people. I will cure you of your backsliding. But into the next chapter, chapter 4, he says, If you, Israel, will return, then return to me. Now at Mosaic here, we've taken up the, the mantle of the Exodus generation and are trying to do the same. We're trying to return. We're, we're trying to return back to the foundations of our faith. We're trying to go back to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're shedding off the old familiar skin of what church has become. In search of what it was supposed to be. The vision Christ had tried to teach his disciples. And along that road, man, we mess it up. We mess it up. And let me be clear, I don't think we mess it up intentionally, guys. It's not like it's shame on you. You knew what you were doing. It's not like that. I think the internal struggle between the flesh and the spirit, it pours out into every part of our life. For instance, we speak about a God who loves us just like we are, who accepts us just like we are, who meets us just like we are. And any of you who've ever been to church for any length of time, you know what I'm about to say. We, we quote each other the words of 1 John 4.19. We love each other because he first loved us. Loves us just like we are. We, we go up and we say, hey, did you know about Jesus, man? Well, yeah, but I'm really bad. No, 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 no. Jesus loves you. Yeah, just like you are. Like, I know, but I'm really bad. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in sin. I'm living. I'm not living right. For, yeah, I know, but Jesus loves you. You're not hearing me. Jesus loves you. Well, can he love me? I mean, like, I, yes, he does. He loved. The Bible says that he loves you just like you are. And then we turn around and we get saved. And Jesus loved us just like we are. And we learn about the transformed life. And then we start pointing fingers to everybody not living it. As if that all, well, they must not be saved. What? That doesn't even make sense. How can Jesus love us just like we are? And if we will repent and believe. And then, it, oh, by gosh, if I mess up one rule, I must be not good. And Jesus, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm totally out of his grace again. Wait a minute. You didn't get into his grace by doing something, but you think you can get it out by doing something? 
That makes no sense. What happens to us? Man, our draw towards legalism should be like evident to us of our war against the flesh. We're like so drawn to rules. You know, I've heard it said, uh, one of the movies one time says, man, you're a people who love subjugation. Aren't you? You crave slavery. You crave it. You love to be set under a set of rules where you can know what's right and what's wrong. And so that way you know if you're doing right and you know if you're doing wrong. Jesus says, I accept you just like you are. And you're like, I can't understand that because nobody accepts me just like I am. My mom loves me because I'm her kid because if I wasn't her kid, she wouldn't love me. We don't understand love that accepts us like that. So, so we mess it up. We create doctrines and theology and all these other ideas that somehow if you fail along the way, if you have trouble, you slip and you fall and you fall back into the things that were so hardened against you, the things that your flesh is craving for and you're struggling to try to do right and you're struggling trying to do good, you're struggling to be transformed. Well, you must not be saved. Are you kidding me? But this is the church. This is what we've evolved into for all of our uh, intelligence. He accepts us just like we are. <laughs> Grace, that's how it works. Grace is unmerited favor. It means you didn't deserve anything. And guess what, guys? You still don't. For all your righteousness of following the rules, you still don't deserve salvation, but God gives it to you. Because you fail all the time. And, instead, and what, you know what I'm here to teach about today is instead of loathing and guilt, embrace glorious failure. That's what I'm really here talking about today is instead of loathing and guilt over all the times you fail, celebrate how not to do something right. Here's why. Because it leads you in how to do something right. Right? Every time you fail, you should, like literally, you should go, Lord... Yeah, I, I failed. I'm sorry. The confession of sin is there. I failed. I acknowledge my failure, God. And you know what it makes me do, God? It makes me appreciate your grace. And in a response to the love you're bestowing on me, despite my failure, I am going to continue to try to seek and follow after you. Because that's what failure makes us do. It makes us rely more. Where sin abounds, what, what abounds more? Grace. Right? I feel the abundance of God's love. Why? Because I fail all the time. And so God has, I got a shower, this brother. This guy feels like he's failing all the time, man, but he just keeps coming. He doesn't stop. Like he's not quitting, man. No, why? Because I have a hope that perseveres. He's not quitting. He's not quitting. Yeah, he fails every time, but he's not quitting. I got to shower this brother with some grace. I got to let him know that I love you, man, that these things are not what determine my love. But this is the church. And listen, the church has always struggled with this, guys. You know, even when we go back and look, right? Even when we go back and look, listen, I mean, if we go back to the book of Acts, you know, Pastor, you, you, know, you tell us we need to go back to the book of Acts. I'm, I'm going to show you something. This is uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Now listen to Paul, who is a product of the new church, right, that Jesus has born as he approaches even some of the pillars of the church, okay? Listen to this. Just so you can know that the early church struggled just like us, guys. Paul says, Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas. And Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be the leaders 
of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised. He was happy about that. Do you understand, do you understand why it's not the pain flesh thing? It was He was happy about it because Titus was a Gentile. He did, they didn't ask for him to be circumcised because that's a Jewish tradition that would have been religious, uh, uh, practical stuff imposed upon somebody who, didn't, who never grew up that way. It was never sin to him to not be circumcised. That's grace. That's Titus living in grace. He says, though he was a Gentile, even that question came up, came up only because some so-called believers, I love it, those legalists, those so-called believers, they're the false ones, really, who were secretly brought in. Boy, that's a whole sermon. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. They were wanting us to go back and be legalistic. They wanted to take from me the grace that God had given me and empower me back into the law that says, if I don't do these things, I'm not saved. But we refused to give them uh, uh, into them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputations that great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Remember that, guys, when I say we were all equal. God has no favorites. God is no respecter of man. I do not hold a higher position than you in heaven. Make no mistake about it. Instead, they saw that God had given me responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as the pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep, practice, keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I always been eager to do listen here pillars of the church listen but when peter came to antioch gentile city where the first names where you would hear the word christian for the first time i had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong pillars of the church guys i think it's pretty well established that if you were going to invite peter to your church you're inviting a pretty pretty big guy in the church when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Cool, that's not the problem. But afterward, when some of the friends of James came, other Jews, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. By the way, you see how easy it is to fall back into legalism? Out of fear of criticism, we change what we believe. If it happened to those who we look up to as the pillars of the church, as Paul declared, can it happen to us? Failure awaits us, guys, on our Christian journey. It awaits all of us, not even Peter's exempt, guys. There's no getting around it. Failure is everywhere in the Bible, in every book. We fail to have faith. We fail to believe. We fail to live for Christ. We fail to die to our flesh. We fail to listen to God's voice. We fail to pray. We fail to walk in grace. We fail to giving grace. We fail to giving in forgiveness. We fail in being loving. 
We fail at being the church. I know, right? It doesn't sound very motivational, does it? <laughs> what did your pastor teach about? How horrible we all are? <laughs> Maybe not. Come on, I know it's not, I know it's not motivational, but, but it's true. Recognizing the truth is the first step, though, in course correcting. And eventually succeeding. We must recognize failure when it stands at the door so we can be corrected and move forward. Failure is not demoralizing. Quitting is. Let me say that again. Failure is not demoralizing. Quitting is demoralizing. So why not quit? Because there's hope. We have hope in Jesus who loves us too much to leave us alone. You're never alone. There's never a time where you're by yourself and alone. There are times where you cannot tangibly feel God, but God is there. We have hope in the Holy Spirit to guide us back into the truth of God. And the road to God will be found in glorious failure. (laughs) Like it or not, we're going to do a bunch of things wrong. We are going to try and do all kinds of different things. And there are times when it will seem as if we have literally like there are times when we'll do things that will seem like there's no participation. There's time where some of it's not even going to make any sense. There are times when it'll seem as if we're waiting on God that's never going to show up. Like, God, where are you? Oh, I'm the only one. You can take it to the bank that at some point in your heart, out of fear of criticism, We'll reach the point where you, will, too, will be like the children of Israel and say, why can't we just go back and be like all the other nations? By the way, as soon as they got across the Red Sea, guys, first of all, let's just fathom this. The ocean picks up into straight lines, and they walked across. Okay, that's like, I don't know if you, I know you've seen movies, because that's the only thing close you can even think about to experience it, right? I always thought it was funny. I saw somebody the other day that, that uh, had said something just like a kind of a FY. Remember Joni? She actually said this. Joni said this. Said, uh, she goes, just by the way, all you people talking about, uh, I feel, al- you know, like with the song we sing, I feel alive in the river and all this in the river. Just, just know this, that everywhere in the Old Testament there was a river they just walked across on dry land. It was never about getting wet. <laughs> they were like, oh, God, we just prayed it and God split the waters and we just walked through on dry land every time we wanted to go in the river. You know? <laughs> I was like, okay, Joni, calm down. Don't mess up our Pentecostalism. Imagine that moment. Now imagine getting on the other side and saying, we want to go back. I'd rather live under the harsh cruelty of slavery than live in the unknown of failure. I don't know what lies ahead, but I know it's back in Egypt. And it was horrible, but at least we had food. And we figured out a way to live underground. We figured out a way for our kids to survive the slaughter We figured out ways to grow even though they were trying to kill us left and right. Let's go back to that instead of embracing an own. I I don't know if you've read it, but they they go like literally, what did God do? Bring us out here to die? Uh, I don't think a God who took the time to split waters, guys, all right, who does the miracles in your life for you to get to the other sides of those red seas in your life, just brought you to the other side so you could just uh, die. Just saying, guys. When all the crazy stuff happens, when all the failure happens, we have to remember <coughs> who's in charge. The road is going to be hard. 
It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be small, guys. You ever try to walk on a small walkway? There's like a bunch of people. You're like, it's uncomfortable. Kind of angry about it. <clears throat> oh, that's only me. My bad, too. <clears throat> you forget the words of Jesus. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and the gate is wide for many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is what? It says difficult, <clears throat> and only a few ever find it. Whoa. I, all those people that try to say, make Christianity sound so, it's just so easy. No, it ain't. That's why when they fail, they automatically have guilt, thinking, what happened? Like, I was the one moron that couldn't figure it out. That was, I must be the dumbest guy because they said it was so easy, but I've already failed. So they, no wonder, right? We never say it's hard. Like, dude, it's totally hard, man. Like, yeah, I know you said words, but your heart is going to start this transformation process and get ready because when you fail, you're going to feel like quitting. Why? Because we've somehow tried to, we've somehow by our lack, and this is why we're transparent guys and honest, our lack of transparent honesty has not told you or not shown you that it's hard and difficult. So you had the false assumption that this whole thing was easy because you're looking, at, you're looking at my life because I'm not really sharing the hard parts. I'm not really telling you, you know, like my wife texts me, what are you preaching on this morning? I said, failure and how big a failure I am. Because if I don't tell you that, if I don't show times in my life where I am those things, guys, you're going to walk into your life going, man, why can't I, why can't I just get to where they're at? Uh, guys, you are. You are. Okay. You fail as much as I do. Guess what? Put, I, there's no like Holy Ghost that comes and puts my shirts on and my pants for me and everything like that. It doesn't wake up like that in the morning. I have to get up, take a shower, clean up, the whole thing just like anybody else does. It's hard. It's difficult. Most people, including most churches, don't choose the difficult road. That doesn't even come natural to us. We choose everything easy. I know that I'm going to have to go home and change brakes today. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of it. Why? Because that's hard and I don't want to do it. It's, it's nature, right? To choose the easy road all the time. Nature causes, that's why we don't like taking uh, risks. That's why faith seems so difficult. Because if we step out in faith, that means we got to take a risk. We could fail. I don't want to fail. That hurts. You fail enough, you felt the pain before. You know, that's why you don't like to step out in risk. You know what it's like. You know what it could cost. I know, but it's, the, the Bible said the road is difficult. Faith is hard. That's how it is. Think about it. How many times have you seen faith contradict wisdom? Faith has a tendency to push us past conventional conservative thinking and into scary unknowns all the time. Stuff doesn't make sense. And we're not on this road just because we desire to be different, guys. We're on this road because God is calling us to return. We're heading back to God because we've seen the fruit of doing what everyone else is doing. That's, that's my problem. That's why I go to this conference have the problem that I do. I see the disciple they're putting out. Look at our country. It's not changing anything. They're not going out into their homes and into their friends and winning their friends. They're not telling their friends about Jesus. They're not liberating the people next to them. At, at what point, when you finally, like one of the things I did, that I did here that was great, it's, it's so true that it said this. This pastor said, the, the biggest thing we're trying to get our church to do is love people like they love themselves. Because as soon as that happens, evangelism will take place. Do you enjoy the freedom that God's given you? Why wouldn't you want to give that as a gift? If they were you, wouldn't you want to be told? 
I say this all the time. I, 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 can you believe that I went through in my entire high school life, especially as a youth pastor, I said this a lot. Can you believe I went through my entire high school without anybody sharing the gospel with me? Who would, I mean, come on. If somebody could share the gospel, I mean, what could they have saved me? Decisions could they have saved me from if the, if the transformation would have started sooner? Now, what I've experienced, everything I've experienced now, I don't have any regrets. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I'm, somebody didn't love me enough to tell me. And everybody that we don't tell is somebody else we're saying we don't love enough. It's hurtful. It doesn't take much to look around our community, our country, and see that somewhere the church is failing. And, and I, I, I don't think there's one thing we can pinpoint, so I don't want to say exactly where, or it's exactly this all the time. It's, it's a little of everything. But I can see the fruit that we're producing right now, that it's not answering the needs of the world. And it goes all the way up to our leadership, guys. That's the reason we have the leaders we have in office right now. So what do we do? We return to God for the answer. My hope is in that the journey back will create the disciple that this world needs. Do I know that that's what? I know this, that God has said to return. I am believing. I am believing that the answer lies at God. So that when we, when we reach there, that will finally be the scripture. Not think upon it, pray upon it, love upon it, wish upon it. But we will be the scripture that says, if my people humble themselves. Right? And pray. And repent from their wicked ways. I will restore this place. We will be that. And for the first time, you and I both will be able to say, we've seen a church model it now. So that when, when generations find themselves in this place again, because look at the Bible, it repeats itself. That they'll have a generation to look back to, like we have in the Bible. That this is what it looks like. But look at how harsh it is when, they, when it happens in the Bible. No, the journey's not easy. It's a difficult road. But don't be scared. Be prepared. Failure will come, but it also, I love the King James, it will come to pass. The Bible says weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. We don't live in failure. We endure it. There are no valleys without mountains, guys. So we can only walk in the valley for so long before we're going to start walking uphill. Eventually we will reach the mountains and persevere into the blessings and the promises of God. The key is unwavering faith. I mean, you ever read the book of Hebrews? You ever read the faith chapter, chapter 11? It says that by faith, some overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. It also says that some encountered failure and even death, but instead chose to hold fast to their faith. And you know what the Bible called these people? It said they were too good for this world. For those who believed and never saw the thing they were believing for, God Almighty, through His Word in Scripture, says they were too good for this world. Because what were they? They were visionaries. They spoke of a God. They spoke of a time. They spoke things. Even though they never saw them, they, the harshness of life would take them. But they held fast to their faith and they hoped in one who was coming. The Hebrew author places their faith as the prime example of how all faith should be because he closes the chapter with them. Which, by the way, when you're trying to give somebody a feel-good message, you don't close it out with uh, the people who didn't get to see all their stuff transpire. 
But he does that on purpose. He wants you to feel the weight of that. That yo, all, all these people that had faith and then they saw these things come to pass. Yeah, awesome. Guys that didn't and held their line no matter what, even better is what he says. Right? And who are those? Those are not people that didn't experience failure. They never quit. They never quit. Remember the words of Christ. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You tell me, has he ever promised it to be easy? Didn't sound like it there. Yes, you will experience failure. For some of you, if you're like me, you'll experience glorious failure. You will fail like nobody else can fail. But take heart. God has overcome. And in him, so will you. So will you. Let's worship him this morning. We're getting ready to, to come in the back end like we've been doing worship here lately. We're going to bring a few songs back up and we're going to do some worship. But we're also going to have communion at the end of worship. One of the things that is definitely I came away with impressed on my heart. I am a man of prayer. And if you've been around me for any length of time, you probably know. If I probably taught on one thing more than anything, it's probably prayer. I've beat the drum on it for years and years and years. And while I haven't talked about it much with the cookbook, I have, there's a drum that beats in my heart for it. And one of the things that I definitely know that can't be part of Mosaic is a 10% prayer life. It can't be. And while we might not increase the Sunday morning prayer, it means that once a month or twice a month, we're going to have to start having prayer services and really start praying. We want our nations to change. We've got to pray for it. We want our city to change. We've got to pray for it. By gosh, I don't know about you, but I've got some brothers that need Jesus. I've got some family that needs Jesus. I mean, I do. I've got friends in this town that need Jesus. And so do you. So do you. And, and, and you know as well as I do. And if you... If you I love, I love it because I almost look at, well, there's lost people in us. No, there's just people. There's just, we're just all people. Some of us God has set free. Some of us God has not set free yet. And God is waiting for us to do that, guys. So as the worship is coming up, I don't know where you failed or the things that maybe you struggle with. What I do know is this. God is telling you do not give up hope. God is saying do not quit believe exercise your faith speak there's a there's a time where uh god talks about abraham and he says he called those things that be not as though they were they had not yet experienced it but he was saying it was so he was believing it by faith he was exercising his faith during this time of worship especially as we get to the quieter songs i want you to exercise your faith. Pray over the people. Think about, we'll have a time here at the end before communion where we will pray over and we will, we will take time to, to think about those who need Jesus. For God to recall them to our face and, and, and begin to pray for them so that they, my ears might be open and that their heart might be receptive to the gospel. And that can be anybody. Guys, it can be somebody you know. It could just be people in town because we need it. I'm telling you. Marble Falls is in a strange season right now. And it's been a weird place because I had not know how to take it. And, I, and there's a lot of things I'm praying for, but there's a lot of things I know you're praying for too. And we share each other's burden in that area. Amen. Stand to your feet.
guys will just pray with me this morning. Lord, we come into this place and Father, we recognize that your spirit is here with us. We know that you are always with us, even outside of these walls, Lord. I pray that as we sing these songs, Lord, that you would examine our hearts. I know you see in there. I know you see the deep, dark places. And I pray that you would do a work inside of us, Father, so that we can we can look like you outside these doors. I pray we act like you, we talk like you. When people see us, Father, I pray they see you. And when they don't, I ask for grace. Lord, help us. this morning we're going to sing about how wonderful you are and how you always keep your promises Lord how what you say in the Bible is true and we recognize that and we're so thankful but Lord I pray that you always lead us to you back to the cross back to where there's hope and where there's peace and where there's grace Yeah. 
Father, we, we take the cup right now, Lord, and we take the cracker and we lift it up before you, Lord, and we say, God, we remember. We don't take lightly this moment, God. We don't want to brush it away into tradition, God. We do it as a family. We do it as a body. We believe. We take this moment and we remember. We remember your body beaten and bruised, God. Broken for us, O oh Lord. Your refusal to open your mouth, God, reminds us, God, that you were determined and set in your way to finish that which you set out to do. To save us. To love us first. Though we didn't understand, we didn't comprehend the, the, what, what was really before us, O oh Lord. We are as guilty as all those who crucified you, God. And yet we stand uh, and, and marvel in your grace and in your love. This morning is not uh, so we can have a time where we listen to somebody speak or so we can play music, God. We, we use this instruments and our gifts, God, to worship you. And we use uh, the words that you have spoken through people, uh, uh, Lord, but really are your words, God, to, to, to speak into our own lives and our own heart, God, as a response to the love and grace of what you've done. So this morning when we take the cracker, God, we remember, we remember your body, God broken and poured out God let's take the crack and in the same fashion God we remember your blood poured out over us God we remember in revelations when it says who are they they are those who have been made white by the blood of the lamb and as we drink from your cup God we remember that our righteousness is given to us through your blood cleanses us and makes us us new. Let's take the cup. It's easy to get caught up, Lord, in everything else. Failure, complacency, and everything in between, God, we miss the mountain, we miss the valley such small understanding such a small grasp God of the greater thing of who you are and what you're doing upon this earth God but we stand in awe of you this morning we stand in awe and we remember
That's the truth of communion. That's the truth of the cross. And that's the truth of the gospel. There is no failure that separates you from God. The Bible says that if we believe and we call upon his name, we repent, we confess, we, we, we give up. And we say, okay, God. He is eager to forgive us and forget all that which is before. Nobody said it's going to be easy, but you do have God's love with you and His grace with you all the time. God, help us with one another give the same love and the same grace that you bestow on us to each other so that when we fall, we do not criticize, nor do we judge, nor do we imprison people into some things that are just false, God, but that we become the friend that we long to have and the friend we have in you. If you're struggling with that this morning, will you find me or joy this morning? Just off to the side. Will you talk to us? And if, you're, if, if you found failure in your life and you just need somebody to stand next to you and say, hey, I love you, that's us, okay? Hopefully that's each other. 
We are going to experience failure. But I encourage you, through the power of the faith of Jesus Christ, do not quit. Persevere. Persevere. Like the author of Hebrew, and become too good for this world. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Amen. Amen. God loves you this morning. God loves you. I'm thrilled about that. If you have something, anything you need to talk about, find Joy and I this morning. Pull us to the side. And just be courteous. If you see somebody talking with us, just give us some time. We're not going anywhere. Ministry's over when we say it's over. Ministry exists when the music stops. Ministry exists while we're loading up. You know why? Because our friendships don't end just because the service is over. With each other, with anyone. Amen? Amen. I love you. You're dismissed this morning.